Here's another inspiring speech recorded at Communities in Control, Australia's biggest and best annual community sector gathering. Um, yes, hi. Uh, I am sometimes introduced as a motivational speaker, thank you very much, but um, I find that the world of motivational speakers is um, overly fraught with extroverted alpha males with big teeth that talk about horrendous concepts like big, hairy, audacious goals and throbbing targets. And <laughs> if you're inclined towards introversion, as I am, it can be a little bit disconcerting. Um, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a raging introvert. Um, I have all sorts of strategies to avoid networking with people. Um, I, I call it not working. Um, <laughs> Has anyone here done Aikido? I, oh, okay, cool, yeah. Well, okay, I've done a one-week course. But um, Aikido is a Japanese martial arts where if someone's trying to attack you, you're not trying to hurt them or, or harm them anyway. You're trying to just redirect the energy. And so um, I'm going to give the camera person a workout, sorry. Um, as uh, I realized that if you, in a networking situation, walk around the room as though you know what you're doing, you can effectively ping-pong about the room and everyone will think that you're important. And if, and if, if someone does start to approach you, you just redirect the energy. And that's, uh, <laughs> that's, kinda, that's how I survive. Um, but then sometimes you accidentally make eye contact with someone. And you know when you, know you realise, like, um, like, oh, crap, okay, conversation. Oh, hey, hey. And then you realise, oh, that's, that's small talk, is it? Okay, um, very well. Um, actually, I don't know if you do this. Are there any uh, introverts in the room? Just put up your hand. Yeah, cool. Wow. Yeah. Hardcore introverts don't even put up their hand, do they? They, <laughs> they just, uh, just glance at you and resume judging you. Um, <laughs> which is fine. That's, that's where I'm from. Sometimes the extroverts put up their hand because they love the attention. Um, but, <laughs> but no, no, no. It's introvert, extrovert. It's all about how we recharge our energy. And let's not get too caught up with the whole labels because we're all ultimately ambiverts. It's very contextual. But I don't know if you do this thing. I do this thing sometimes. You know when you find yourself in uh, kind of just mediocre small talk territory. I have this autopilot for conversation where I kind of, I kind of just deploy it uh, and while I think about something more interesting. I don't know if you do this. I, I do this quite a lot. Um, um, but then I have these trigger words that bring me back into the moment. And one of the trigger words that um, is awakening for me is, is when someone uses the word literally. If someone says the word literally, I can't help but think about what they've just said in its most literal context. Um, <laughs> Because uh, most, like, it's like, like the word awesome. You know, awesome used to mean something. Now it kind of doesn't really mean much. Um, literally, people have to use the word twice to convey what they mean. Literally, literally. Because uh, when they say it once, it's almost like figuratively. Um, so I was at an event once and someone said, oh, it is so cold in here, I'm literally freezing my ass off. Um, which, uh, for someone with a background in science, is fascinating. Because I can't help but think, how are you doing this? Um, and the best I could deduce is uh, liquid nitrogen sachets just affixed to the buttocks in the morning, just um, slowly, literally freezing it off. Um, then one can't help but think about um, uh, why. Why are you doing this? Um, now, you know, in the last, I don't know how many years it was, but we've got the National Disability Insurance Scheme, so possibly there's some loophole they're looking to exploit, maybe. Um, uh, there's also a psychological phenomenon whereby if people are engaged in an activity that they feel guilty about, they feel compelled to share it with otherwise strangers. So maybe that's what's happening. Um, I was at an event once and someone said to me, ha, that was so funny, I literally peed my pants. And I was like, oh, dude, no you didn't. Um, and I don't know why I'm declaring spontaneous incontinence is a useful social strategy. I guess, um, I guess what I'm suggesting here is that we're all a little bit odd, but... If we take a step back and look at what we're doing at an individual and collective uh, level, uh, some interesting patterns can emerge. 
And this is where I want to get into. This, this, uh, we are going to be looking at motivation, but through a little bit more of a philosophical or a practical philosophical lens. Um, I'm about to do something that is going to reverse everything I set up, uh, for I'm soon to utter the words, turn to the person next to you. Um, personally, when I hear that, I can't help but have some upswelling of withering contempt for the speaker, because I'm often quite happy where I am. I don't feel any particular need to turn to the person next to me. It's, um, it's a situation where every table has a bit of a dud one, too, and you've got to work out which, which, which way you kind of... Those in the rows, it's kind of... It's just maths, you know, which... Yeah. But, but I remember once I, I remember once, I was once thinking, ah, oh, maybe I'm the dud one, you know? There is a slightly more than 50% chance that you're going to be the dud one of this imminent pairing. So the opportunity for you is to be slightly more interesting and slightly more interested in what the other person has to share. Because this conversation is going to be delightful. What I want you to do at the first bit is I'm going to get you to silently, this is, this is where we, we recognize where the extroverts are, to silently find out who your BFF is, your best friend forever for at least the next um, 45 minutes. And your BFF is who you're going to be talking to. So I'd like you to give your BFF a warm nod in a moment. If you find yourself in an awkward threesome, I'm not sure what the third person does other than watch or something. I'm not really, I really... So the opportunity is, silently, if you discover to your all mutual horror or delight that you're in a, uh, an awkward threesome, there's an opportunity for you to maybe find another pair here. So I'm going to give you 10 seconds to warmly nod to your BFF and find out who you're going to be chatting with. And wrapping up your conversations for the moment. And magic. Wow. You are a lively bunch. This is lovely. OK, cool. So this conversation, I think, is a really lovely, useful one. And look, if you are in a group of three, that's fine. You guys will navigate through this. This will be fine. I believe in you. Um, I would like you to think about, think about your life as though it were an autobiography. Like, imagine your life has this massive story. It's not, not necessarily true. This is probably narrative fallacy. It's our like, a, an ability to make meaning of stuff that, or causal connections that aren't necessarily there, but it's, it's useful nonetheless. Imagine that your life is this big story that's been written down in this big book, and every single moment leading to this moment right now has been written down in this massive book, this story of your life. If you were to look back on the last few years, I wonder, if you were reading it, would, you, would it be exciting? Would it be interesting for you? Would you be thinking, oh, this again? Okay, all right. Um, and in the last 12 months in particular, the last 12 chapters, what was, what's, that got, what's going on there? If you were to take a step back and summarize and distill the last 12 months of your life into just one word, what would that word be? Just one word to describe what the last 12 months are. That's your little conversation with your BFF. I'm going to give you about three or four minutes to have this chat. Off you go. And wrapping up your conversations for the moment. Wrapping up your conversations for the moment. And... Magic. Okay, cool. All right, great. This is lovely. Probably, probably, oh, the tension, we're just getting somewhere deep and stuff. This is, these are conversations you can pick the thread up throughout the event and beyond um, in our community. So uh, this is interesting. This is a conversation I, I ask of folks uh, around the world, no matter what type of um, work they do, no matter what type of country they're in, 
By far the most common word that I hear nowadays when asked to describe the last 12 months in just one word, the most common word that I hear is busy. <laughs> and if it's not busy, it's challenging, it's change, uh, or it's things of that nature. And even if this wasn't the word that you chose, I'm sure it's a theme that you can relate to. I think that we're in a world now where we're busier than ever before. And yes, you know, each generation believes that they're busier than before. But what's something that we all share nowadays is that with the hyper-connectivity that we have, work doesn't just happen at work anymore. We've got work happening wherever we are. There's always emails, there's always things to do, or we carry work with us back at home, particularly in a lot of work that you do. And this result is that many of us feel really busy. And when we're busy, it's natural for us to feel as though we're time poor. And when we're time poor, it's natural for us to favor quick fixes, familiar solutions, and default ways of doing things. These defaults are the options we choose automatically in the absence of viable alternatives. So defaults are actually quite helpful. We need defaults about 80% of the time. They're the bulk of the work that we do, the, the kind of the excellence in the work that we do. We need defaults 80% of the time. Our defaults are the options we choose automatically in the absence of viable alternatives. Um, imagine you're going to go get a coffee with someone and you, you find them at a cafe, you sit down, you're in conversation immediately, and then the floor staff come to get your coffee order. There may be some beautiful single-origin geisha being grown at high altitudes that has a lovely floral-like aroma and tea-like tannins with a silky mouthfeel and undercurrents of maple and hazelnut. But you wouldn't know because you haven't had time to look at the menu. So what you instead do is go for your default coffee preference. It might be a skinny cappuccino. Um, I was in Adelaide once and I heard the phrase of Shea Latte. It's a chai latte. That's what, you, that's, what you, that's what you get on the way to Target, I dare say. Mm. Mm. In Melbourne and Wellington, you can, uh, of course, uh, order a Magic, which is a double ristretto, three-quarter flat white. Uh, in Brisbane, if you're lucky, you can order yourself a Schlong, which is a short, long black. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's yet to take off. You know, I'm, I'm trying to introduce new Brisbane. You can ask for a Schlong um, at morning tea, perhaps. Um, by that reasoning, too, you could probably ask for a Schmack, which would be a short macchiato. Um, anyway, Schmack or a Schlong. Anyway, good ways to start the day. Um, what... Uh, the thing is, though, we all have our default coffee preference, so when we don't have much time, we go to our defaults. And this makes sense. It makes sense when we're pressed for time. It makes sense about 80% of the time. But my worry is that for many of us, it now looks like more, more like 98% of the time. We have become so busy individually and collectively that it's robbing us of the ability to engage in a slower, more thorough type of thinking. Um, there's a book by Daniel Kahneman, a Nobel Prize laureate, uh, who uh, called Thinking Fast and Slow. Has anyone heard of this book? Yeah, cool. The, the, the essential gist is uh, there are two types of thinking. There's fast thinking, which is quick, it's instinctual, it's inherently flawed and subject to cognitive bias. And there's slow thinking, which is much more thorough. It's where, where we consider things from multiple perspectives, where we stay in the tension, where we have curiosity and empathy. And that slow thinking usually helps us to arrive at a better decision. Now, we can't have slow thinking all the time, uh, but my worry is that for many of us, we're not getting the time to engage in this slower, more thorough type of thinking. And the result is we see this perpetuation of default thinking. This default thinking is the type of thing where we can work super, super busily 
uh, and, and then one day find that our work and our efforts are no longer relevant because we've just lost touch with the community, we've lost touch with the people and the things that matter. I don't think it's as much of a, an issue for you guys because you are working so closely with communities. But it's something that we need to be mindful of when it comes to how we work, the, the, the way that we approach our work. Um, and so what I want to give you is a bit of a frame for thinking about motivation. I'm going to give you two lenses that I think are helpful, and then I'll open up to some Q&A. Um, did anyone here see uh, Jerry Seinfeld when he um, came to Australia? No, neither did I. Cool. Um, <laughs> good. Because uh, I'm not sure if this story is true or not. It's just a cool story, bro. Um, so uh, Jerry Seinfeld was once rumored to have been paid a huge amount of money to speak for about five minutes in his local city to share his secrets to success. Um, he wasn't the only speaker. Lots of people paid lots of money to attend. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, Jerry Seinfeld here to share his secrets to success. He walks out on stage, gives everyone a nod. There's a flip chart on stage. He takes out a, a marker. He writes down three words, nods, and walks off. And for the next four minutes and 50 seconds, people stare at these three words, his secret to success, which I quite like. Those three words were, do the work. <laughs> which, for, which for anyone who's um, uh, like an, an avid subscriber to The Secret, a book that says that as you visualize, you actualize, and all your dreams will manifest, it might have been disappointing. Um, <laughs> but I think, that, I think that everyone in this room knows that any meaningful success happens on the other side of good work. There's no shortcutting the work. And so the question then is, how do we get people motivated to do good work? Or more importantly, how do we get people motivated to do great work? Great work where we go above and beyond the default, where we have curiosity and empathy. How do we get people motivated and sustain that motivation to do great work? This was a question that was asked of over 600 managers in different industries, different organizations, different countries. And these managers were given a bunch of good answers to choose from, distilled down from various meta-analyses. So studies of studies, all these are good answers. I'm going to repeat this list of five things twice, and then you're going to mumble to your BFF what you think the correct answer is. Don't say it too clearly in case you get it wrong, but have a go. Um, so these five things were recognition for good work, interpersonal support, clear goals and targets, incentives and rewards, or a clear sense of progress clear sense of progress, incentives and rewards, clear goals and targets, interpersonal support, or recognition for good work. What do you reckon the number one thing is? I'll give you five seconds. And that's five seconds. So. <clears throat> The correct answer is, of course, it depends. Um, but, but, but what the number one thing was is recognition for good work. And it's a really good answer. Um, what it doesn't mean is completing the second half of your feedback sandwich where you kind of give them a wafer-thin acknowledgement about something good they might have done and then a whole bunch of shitty feedback laced with personal attacks and then another wafer-thin acknowledgement and see you again in six to 12 months. It's not that. It's providing good feedback proximal to the activity. It makes sense. Um, what the researchers thought might be novel, though, is um, why don't we ask the employees themselves? Well, better yet, let's follow a bunch of employees over several years, analyzing over 12,000 journal entries to see what correlates to the highest levels of motivation to do great work. And it turns out what came out as number one is what the managers ranked as dead last, and that is a clear sense of progress. A clear sense of progress. 
This became the number one breakthrough idea from the Harvard Business Review uh, Business School in 2010. It's yet to permeate into much of leadership folklore, but it makes a lot of sense. What this means is it's much less about fixating upon distant goals and targets, and much more about celebrating small wins along the way. The more that we can reduce the latency between effort and meaningful feedback, the more likely we are to have people invest effort into things. And given how chaotic and how ambiguous and turbulent uh, our, kind of, our country is at the moment, it kind of makes sense. You anchor motivation to a distant goal and then the target shift or uh, the politics change or something happens, it can be very uh, devastating. But when we rally our focus back on the small wins and the accumulation of small wins, that is a pathway to sustaining motivation. I'll give you an example. Imagine earlier in your career, uh, you're working for a different organization, a different boss, and that person says to you, look, I need you to get this report to me by Monday uh, morning. I have some people coming from overseas. This is terribly important, and you're terrible at saying no. So you say yes, and you stay back late, and you work really hard, and you cancel cupcakes and with your friends on the weekend. You work on this report. You do amazing referencing, proofreading, formatting. Late Sunday night after proofreading it for the fourth time, you send it off. You're quite proud of yourself, because um, you put a lot of work into this. It's really good. You know you went above and beyond. Monday comes, you hear nothing back from your boss, but you think, that's fine, they're probably busy with a guest. Tuesday comes, and you didn't sleep well because, you know, sometimes you send an attachment, it doesn't quite go through, or it bounces, or something. Hey, just checking, got the report, uh, just reattaching it here, let me know if there's anything else you need. Uh, Wednesday comes, still nothing. Thursday comes, still nothing. You're a little bit pissy by this stage. Um, Friday morning comes, and you start work, and you're greeted with an email that says, thanks, turns out I didn't need it. And what we learn in that moment is, should a similar request come about again in the future, it's much more likely that we're going to default to a conservative level of effort, because we just don't know if it's going to go anywhere. And this makes sense. We all have a finite amount of time, energy, and attention available to us each day. It makes sense that we invest it into the things that provide the richest sense of progress. Here's a useful heuristic for you. Not always true, but true a lot of the time. Our motivation, our focus, our attention, our behavior, will naturally gravitate to the things that provide the richest sense of progress. Our motivation, our focus, our attention, our behavior will naturally gravitate to the things that provide the richest sense of progress. You might have 98 emails in your inbox, and now later you've got it down to 14, it feels like you're winning. Um, I will sometimes geometrically align things because that gives me a sense of progress. Um, uh, I know that when you donate blood in some countries, maybe Australia now, I'm not sure, you'll get a text message when your blood has been used to help save someone's life, which is a lovely sense of progress for that task. Um, if you uh, have a clear jug, I know this is not clear, but just imagine, a clear jug of water on your desk, you'll drink more water during the day because it acts as a progress bar. I have the same thing with Tim Tam packets. Um, <laughs> just a progress. Oh. There's this... Um, there's a thing called sport, which I've read a little bit about, where um, people seem motivated to move an object through an arbitrary set of posts in order to get a sense of progress in the form of points. And they're happy to risk their life and limb to do so. Um, fascinating. Uh, I know that many of us, when it comes to writing down lists of things to do, will write down things that we've already done just so that we can tick it off and get that sense of progress. We, we love seeing progress. We love knowing our efforts contribute to progress. So... Here's a, here's a little conversation, and this one I'm going to get you to have with your other BFF, the one you've got going on on the side, just so the original one stays keen, okay? So this is with your other BFF. 
If you were to take a helicopter perspective and look at the work that you do or the work that the people around you do, what is it that you do, or the people around you do, that evidently provides a rich sense of progress? And to answer that, you might think, you know, it's funny, we often talk about innovation, collaboration, and creating all these big initiatives, but we always do this thing, and we always do that thing. And I reckon it's because there's these feedback loops that are built into that. What is it that you do, or the people around you do, that evidently provides a rich sense of progress? I'll give you three or four minutes to have this conversation. And beginning to wrap up your conversations, beginning to wrap up your conversations, and magic. So all of these threads are things you can pick up. I'm just a good conversation to have. I'd like you to give your other BFF an awkward wink and your original BFF a bit of a smug look or something. You know, something. See, see, see how that goes. Mm. <clears throat> so here's an interesting question for you to consider. And this is something that we should all consider periodically from time to time, myself included. Of what you just shared, is this meaningful progress? Or are we potentially indulging in a rich delusion of progress? <laughs> and it could well be that what you shared is quite meaningful. If you happen to share that leveling up in Candy Crush or Bejeweled on your phone gives you such a rich and immediate sense of progress, I'd question as to whether this is meaningful progress. Um, <laughs> Um, meaningful progress is that which brings us closer to future relevance. What is future relevance? Well, it takes curiosity and empathy to answer that. You guys are in a very good position to be able to answer that. Um, it, it's, it's, it's this thing then that requires a slower, more thorough type of thinking. But what happens is, is that we find ourselves drawn to the things that provide a rich sense of progress. The things that provide a rich and immediate sense of progress are very often the default things getting in the way of meaningful progress. And I say this to you because one of the hardest things that happens from leaving an inspiring conference like this is that you're going to leave with a whole bunch of new connections, new ideas, new inklings, hunches, possibilities. And then you're going to have a whole heap of work to do, to come back to. And there's no magical way of creating new time. But time can be harvested or, or kind of uh, manifested by reducing the amount of time that we spend on the things that could be considered a rich delusion of progress. Um, Dan Arley, the head of the Center for Advanced Hindsight at Duke University and the author of Predictably Irrational and Other Behavioral Books, um, he was having a conversation with a locksmith once. And this locksmith was saying, you know what, earlier in my career, I'd, I'd, as an apprentice, I'd get called up to pick someone's lock and it'd be a hot summer's day and they'd be waiting outside in their apartment, like outside the apartment. I'd get to work and I'd kind of, sit, you know, get working on picking this lock. And back then it would take me maybe 45 minutes, sometimes an hour. Uh, there's a reasonable chance I'd break their lock too, uh, which would cost them more money. But they were always happy to pay me and I'd often get a tip, uh, bonus payment. Um, Nowadays, though, my fee for that job hasn't changed, but my skills have. And I can rock up, and within 10, 15 minutes max, they're back in the home, and I never break a lock these days. you think they'd be happy, but they're not. They're often pissed off. Like, what? You're charging me that much? It only took you 15 minutes. Are you kidding me? And the, the issue is we often value effort more than we value value. And what this can look like in some organizations, particularly in the way organizations are structured nowadays, is that it's much more of a career advancement strategy to broadcast that you're doing the work than it is actually do the work itself. 
And what this looks like is a whole bunch of unnecessary emails, people CC'd into emails, emails about emails, meetings about meetings, a rich pantomime of busyness instead of getting on with the work itself. And so one of the things that I'd like to offer you is that there's the potential for you to collectively map out and recognize where the delusion of progress exists in the work that you do. Because often, when you have this conversation, you realize, oh, wow, everyone's just as pissed off and frustrated about this thing as I am, and no one really sees the value in this thing. And maybe we can dial that down a little bit or find some opportunities amongst this. The final thing I'll leave you with as a segue to uh, some Q&A is uh, this question of what is meaningful progress? This question of, okay, well, how do we create visibility for meaningful progress, particularly when the default things are so very strong? You'll get this rich and immediate sense of progress from completing emails or doing simple tasks. But the complex, ambiguous, nebulous, slow-yielding nature of a lot of the work that you do, it, it is, it is long, you're playing the long game here with a lot of your initiatives. That can be really hard to find and sustain the visible, meaningful progress for. And so the opportunity here is for us to think about what rituals we have in play. Rituals are like sacred routines where we deliberately carve out time against the grain of busyness so as to progress the things that matter. For you personally, you might have had or, or do have rituals that are really meaningful and significant for you. In my experience, and for some people it's the walk that they have in the mornings, it's something that they do uh, with a cup of tea in the morning before they start work. Uh, for many organizations, there will be this fond memory. Oh, yes, I remember when we used to, we used to do cake uh, uh, on Fridays. And, and we'd gather around, and people would just celebrate small wins, and we'd talk about some of the frustrations and things that get in the way. And it was really useful. It was lovely. We kind of checked in with each other as the complex beings that we are. And it wasn't just about the work and all the things that we haven't done at the end of the week. It was just a nice little thing. But inevitably, those things have kind of gone away. Why? Because we've become busy. And this quest for efficiency for operational, um, for, for squeezing out the, the kind of the productivity in every hour has taken away some of the most important rituals that we have. And so what I'd like to offer you is just one ritual that I personally do each year. And this could be an opportunity for you to contemplate this. And, uh, and then we'll open it up for some Q&A after a quick discussion. Each year, I suggest you choose one word to serve as a fuzzy contextual beacon for the year ahead. One word to cast 12 months into the future so that should you wander off track, and you will, we all do, it may help call you in line with what your intention is. We all had a word for the last 12 months, but I wonder, what might be your word for the next 12 months, the next 12 blank chapters in this autobiography? Um, this is the year of uh, fool or foolishness for me. Um, a few years ago, I chose the word kingly. Kingly was all about stepping up, growing a beard, having integrity, um, <laughs> uh, doing, you know, looking after folks and stuff. That was brought a lot of seriousness, so I then had the word pirate. Uh, the year of pirate was about being more jolly, drinking more rum, exploring uncharted territory, <laughs> and looking after my mates, being savvy and buoyant. Um, that was good. I then chose the word gentleman, because um, uh, people like, or gentleman pirate, really, because people are like, oh, pirate, yar! It's like, no, no, it's more like your. And, um, <laughs> and so as a, being a paragon of aplomb, quality in all things. Um, I then had the year of jester. Jester was about telling truth to those in positions of power and being comfortable uh, in paradox. Uh, then I had the year of wizard. Uh, wizard was about um, being more eccentric, working on my book a bit more, and, uh, and exploring the cosmos and philosophy and so forth. And here we are at the full. And I wonder, what might your word be for the next 12 months? This is a conversation that may take some time. It may take some inklings, some searching. 
but there's something there. And if you accidentally make eye contact with someone uh, during a networking break, <laughs> an easy question to ask is, what might your word be the year ahead? And of course, no one really knows what it is yet, but it's an opening to, to explore together. So I've shared a few things here. We do have some Q&A coming up, a generous uh, bit of Q&A. But one of the things I've learned is it's nice to have the opportunity to process kind of what we've just heard and what we're exploring, what we're thinking. Uh, so that, uh, you know, because sometimes, anyway, any questions? And then there's awkward silence, and then someone comes in to rescue me with like a really simple question and stuff like that. So I want to give us all a chance just to process. If you did have a question, uh, a comment, point to clarification, or something like that, what might that be? If you want to go a little bit deeper on something I might have glossed over, or if you want to explore something from a different angle, what might that be? I'll give you two minutes uh, to have this conversation on your tables or, or with your BFF, and let's open up for some Q&A. And beginning to wrap up your conversations, wrapping up your conversations, and magic. So how it works, as I understand, is we have a bunch of roving likes. There are some kind of paddles that uh, can wave to see where the things are. Thank you very much. Uh, and just before I do get into that, one of the things I frequently forget to mention, which I really wish I'd mentioned more often, is I have a podcast. I did an hour and a half episode on how to choose one word, if you're interested in going deeper than that. Um, I, I, and I run a newsletter in between writing books. I'm not very big on social media, but that's kind of how I... So if you go to drjasonfox.com, so just drjasonfox.com, uh, you can find out all the stuff there, and there are plenty more resources for you. We hope you've enjoyed this highlight from the community's In Control Library. If you did, we'd love you to rate or review this podcast in the iTunes Store and for you to share it with your friends. For further information about Communities in Control, visit communitiesincontrol.com.au.